0: Hello and welcome to the Palliative Care Journal Watch podcast by Pallium Canada for May 2022, where our panel of palliative care experts keeps you informed of the latest palliative care literature. Our co-hosts, Dr. Jose Pereira and Dr. Leonie Herx are joined by their special guests, Dr. Jordan Lafranier and Lisa Weatherby. If you'd like to access accompanying slides and links to the articles discussed in today's podcast, visit the link in the episode notes. With no further ado, it's time for the Journal Watch.
1: Hi, everyone. Um, It's Dr. Jose Prairie here. And I'm the Scientific Officer of Pallium Canada, and welcome to this, the third episode of the Pallium Palliative Care Journal Watch. It's a journal watch that we do every two months, and during each one of them, we invite some panelists. You might see some well-known faces as we do the series, and the series are hosted by Leonie Herx, who will introduce herself shortly, and myself. The uh, Journal Watch is supported by a grant from Health Canada. The, the whole project is looking at supporting communities of practice, and it's a five-year national initiative. So what is the Journal Watch? It's a regular series of webinars with accompanying podcasts where teams from the Division of Palliative of Care at McMaster University and the Division of Palliative of Care at Queen's University peer review and look for papers in various journals and then bring them to the webinar if we think that they are very relevant to our practices. We do it because it's becoming increasingly difficult to stay up to speed with all the new papers and studies coming out. And so we do know that a lot of the folks who've done LEAP courses before would like to maintain some contact with the LEAP program and update their expertise and knowledge around it. So this offers an opportunity to do so. And we also know that there are a lot of lead facilitators across the country who would love to have access to the journals, but don't, and so this is one way of giving them access to the journals. The journal watch is for clinicians, for managers, um, educators and policymakers across the country. As I said, we have teams at the two divisions that monitor different journals and then bring to the attention of a editing committee, papers that are of interest, and then we select the top four or the top five. Today we have four. We also list what we've called the honorable mentions. So those are papers that we think are really worth looking at. And we provide links to at least the abstracts of those papers so you can have a look at them. As I said, there's accompanying podcasts. So please do go to the Pallium website, specifically the page on the Journal Watch program, and you'll see podcasts. I know there's the one for the, the, the first one was really on, and we may be seeing the second one very soon as well. And then in a few weeks time, you'll see this one posted. The sessions are accredited by both the College of Family Physicians of Canada and also the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons for continuing medical education certificates. So what do we expect today? As I said, we will be looking at four papers. They're short summaries and please do participate. Feel free to ask any questions to the panel around each of those papers. And please do use the Q&A function of the Zoom session. If you've got other comments, you may also post them in the chat box area of the webinar. A disclaimer, Journal Watch is not a journal club, so we do not go into in-depth critical appraisals of each of the articles. Uh, we just bring to your attention areas that we thought uh, interesting. Obviously, as a group, we do try and select papers that we think are robust in terms of their methods. So, by way of introductions, um, as I said, I'm the scientific officer for Palin Canada. I'm also professor and director of the Division of Pied of Care and Department of Family Medicine at McMaster University in Hamilton. And I'll turn over to Leone to introduce herself.
2: Hi, everyone. Leonie Herx. I'm the Division Chair and Associate Professor in the Division of Palliative Medicine, Department of Medicine at Queen's University.
3: Great to be here. Lisa, all Hi. the way from the East Coast. Uh, absolutely. Thank you for inviting me. I'm Lisa Weatherby. I'm the Provincial Practice Lead for Palliative Care here in Nova Scotia with the Interprofessional Practice and Learning Portfolio. So I'm, um, just as I said, absolutely thrilled to be part of this. Jordan.
4: Hi, my name is Dr. Jerome Frenier. I'm uh, one of the palliative physicians working at St. Peter's Hospital here in Hamilton, and I'm associated with the Division of Palliative Care here at McMaster. Thanks for having me today. Great.
1: Some quick disclosures. Pallium Canada is not-for-profit and has been, over the years, funded largely by Health Canada through contribution agreements. I've shown on the slide which years we receive those contributions for, and there's also been some funding from foundations such as the Lee Ka-Shing Foundation, from the Canadian Medical Association, CMA, Patrick Gillen Family Trust and Beringer Ingelheim, who have helped us disseminate the lead lung, but have had no influence whatsoever in the development of those courses. And we do have partnerships with provincial bodies and also some federal organizations. And a lot of the work is also supported by revenues from the LEAP course registration fees and licenses in the sales of the pallium pocketbook. This particular program, the ECHO program, has received financial support from Health Canada in the form of a contribution agreement and program. In terms of disclosures, I do receive a stipend as scientific officer from Pallium Canada and my Co-hosts and colleagues today have no conflicts to declare. And just so you know that the Scientific Planning Committee for this has got complete independent control over the the content and also Palium in general has complete independent control over its programs, including the LEAP program. So today's featured articles. So we have a variety of articles that we think will appeal to a broad audience. We have two articles related to advanced care planning and goals of care discussions. One I think will be particularly interesting discussion. We have one related to The opioid conversions, when we're doing opioid switching or opioid uh, rotations, and then there's one on artificial hydration, and a more recent paper, in fact, when I was looking at it, I realized that it's been a while since we've seen a really good study on that topic, so really keen to introduce that one to you today. So with that then, we'll go to the first one. So the first paper is a Dutch paper. It was a study that was undertaken in the city of Nijmegen in the Netherlands by Tross and colleagues. And it's entitled General Practitioner's Evaluations of Optimal Timing to Initiate Advanced Care Planning for Patients with Cancer, Organ Failure or uh, Multimorbidity, a Health Records Survey Study. And that was published in Palliative Medicine just a few weeks ago. Now, the background to this is that general practitioners just remember that in many of the European countries, family physicians are referred to as general practitioners. So that's where the that word GPs come from. GPs find it difficult to determine the right time to initiate advanced care planning. And that's both in cancer patients, but especially so in patients with non-cancer illnesses, such as advanced heart disease, lung disease, kidney disease, and neuro- neurological diseases, among others. And so the appropriate timing of advanced care planning is a question that's often asked and very important. When do you initiate these discussions? Because If you do them too early, you could lead to plans not reflecting what the patient's wishes are. If you wait for too long and do it too late, then invariably you end up in a crisis situation, having to make decisions in a crisis, which often uh, or sometimes don't go very well. So the objectives of the study was to determine what GPs consider the optimal advanced care planning timing and important clinical indicators to initiate it. So in other words, what do the GPs use as their flags, as it were, to activate an advanced care planning discussion? And then they asked the question, do these the timing differ between three illness trajectory groups? So they chose, this is work that we know from work of joanne lynn and and scott murray in scotland where they've uh, mapped out these illness trajectories and there've been other studies to confirm that these trajectories do actually exist so the one is the cancer trajectory which is the more predictable one uh, with decline and then more rapid decline in the last weeks or months of life the other one is the um, advanced organ disease so advanced heart disease lung disease renal disease where you've got this gradual decline Interspersed with these episodes, of these crises, complications. And then there's the frailty or comorbidity trajectory, which is typified by dementia. So it's gradual decline over many months and years. They found 90 real life cases. So they went to the charts and they went to the charts of groups of family medicine practices or GP practices in that part of the world. And they identified 90 real cases. So the charts of real cases they anonymized those charts, and they removed any information related to advanced care planning so as not to cue the participants who are the GPs. So they had these 90 charts, as it were, and they then recruited 83 GPs. Most of them were GPs from what's Called a practice based research network. So these are practices that collaborate in doing primary care research. And then they also asked them by a snowball method please let us know if you've got colleagues who you think would be interested in the study. And so they recruited 83 GPs. And each of those GPs were then asked to review three charts one chart that was reflective of the cancer illness trajectory, one chart that reflected organ failure, and the other one that reflected frailty comorbidity trajectory. So, what were the results? Well, they found that there were significant differences among the GPs and also across the disease groups that is, the cancer versus organ failure versus multi uh, morbidity. So, the median and I say medium because there's quite a range. And in fact, I have provided on the slide some of the interquartile uh, ranges, but there was significant variation between these diseases. So the GP said overall that for cancer, they would have initiated advanced care planning about 87 days before death and interquartile range was 302. For organ failure, they would have initiated ACP discussions at about 266 days before death and for the multi-morbidity, it was about 290 days before death. Those were the mediums. Okay, so remember, they're looking through the chart, and then they're going back and they say, oh, at this point, I would have initiated advanced care planning discussion. And then the researchers looked at how long was that before death, right? So obviously in the real life, we don't know when death is going to occur. You can't say I'm going to be doing 290 days beforehand. Now, what was interesting was the most frequent reasons for initiating advanced planning. So for cancer, it was receiving a diagnosis. So when people received a diagnosis or there was a indication of progression of the disease, that was the prompt for the GPs to initiate ACP discussions. The other one was no curative treatment options available. The other was poor prognosis. And then there was expression of patients. And by expression of patients, they meant when patients said, I would like to speak about advanced care plans. In organ failure, the most common prompts for them to say, okay, at this point, I'm going to be doing advanced care planning was after a period of illness. So a decompensation, so compensated heart failure or, or lung disease, for example, appropriate setting, a quiet place and say, okay, we're going to have a discussion about this. Again, expressions of patients. For multi age was the big prompt, followed by patients expressing it and then acute symptoms occurring. So why is this article important? Well, I think what it shows is the optimal timing to initiate advanced care planning could be seen as a window of opportunity if you look at those interquartile ranges and that the timing needs to be tailored to individual patients. And I'm, I'm going to ask in the discussion what about those patients who don't express a wish to have these discussions? What do we do then? The strengths of the paper, I thought, was it's a unique study and design. Uh, uses real-life examples because these were actual real-life charts that had been anonymized. The limitations obviously does not depict real life. You know, 290 days before death, we don't know if this is the 290th day before death. So I take that into, into consideration. And then interestingly, In this group of GPs, about 20% of them actually had additional extra interest in palliative care and did a lot more palliative care. So, for the discussion, let's open up to the panel. And as I said, one of the interesting things I found in this paper was, and, and maybe this is an inference I made, it might be incorrect, but in reading the paper, I got the sense that there are quite a few GPs who would say they would wait for the patients to initiate the discussion. So, what do we do if patients don't initiate the discussion? Thoughts on the paper and on that particular question to get started?
3: I can jump in and my most recent experience has been with some patient family advisors and they sit on our network here in Nova Scotia and I keep hearing from them that they didn't know what to ask. They didn't know what the questions are. So I feel pretty strong that the responsibility comes back to us as healthcare providers. So when I think of all of the tools we promote and leap, the surprise question, the spit tool, I would hope if this study, and Leonie said a couple of weeks ago about needing a Canadian a kind of wide study to say, I would hope of all of our early approach and um, introducing palliative care kind of early in that illness trajectory, hopefully our introduction of advanced care planning will come a lot sooner than this study did? Or maybe that's my own hope. I'll jump in, Lisa. I I agree. I think we need to have standardized ways that
2: we think about this so that it's not just left to an individual clinician's practice and individual patient's preference because then we're going to miss people. So I think if we have standardized ways like some of these tools you're referring to that we identify people who have perhaps unmet palliative care needs or palliative care needs that then provides an opportunity for us to do what we're doing through our um, multi-site grant that we're part of is an ACP readiness questionnaire. So there is a tool that you can use very brief short four item questionnaire that lets people know like where they're at in terms of their readiness for the conversation. It would be great if that could be integrated into providing a palliative approach. And then of course, what do you do if if they're not ready for a conversation, but they really need one? So I guess, you know, if they're at high risk, say if we had national uh, patient-reported outcome data sets like phase of illness, which I hope we'll be moving forward in Canada. If you see someone is on an illness trajectory where they're deteriorating or transitioning, then that's another prompt, right, to say we need to have these conversations even if perhaps they're not ready for them. So those are just some of my initial thoughts.
1: Actually, in this study, Leone, they did identify some of that as prompts as well. So changes in the in the health status, complications occurring, acute disease. So fortunately, I saw that appearing
4: in the study. And so I'll jump in as well. And, you know, I think what they also mentioned in the study, which I think is very interesting, is that I don't think there is any one right time to kind of introduce these periods. And, And as it's saying, I think there are these windows that give you an opportunity to, and you probably have multiple of those windows throughout a patient's trajectory. So I think it's just recognizing those and taking advantage of those to, again, you know, even assess somebody's readiness to have that conversation and just, I think give family physicians agency to have that, which, you know, can sometimes be a little difficult in a, in a busy family medicine clinic. But just again, I think promoting that there isn't going to be any strict guidelines in terms of this date, this date, this date, and just to have people have a bit more agency around that.
2: I think the standardized tools though, help trigger those, right? So you can build them into EMRs, for example, right? So that would be ideal. So that just like health screening based on age, that prompts the family physician to do this. it could prompt, say, the nurse in a family physician's clinic to do an ESAS and to do a phase of illness. That's then documented in the chart, and then that in itself would trigger then the next conversation, or perhaps a specialist uh, consultation for palliative of care, if you know symptoms are certainly severe. So, but the same thing with ACP, I think would be very helpful.
3: And I think the next part may be making sure that healthcare providers have the tools to be able to comfortably have the discussion. So I often think back say, to when we introduced the Wish, Worry, Wonder. Yeah. So by putting some of that discussion back, it becomes a little less fear around bringing that up with some of these individuals, regardless of what they're, you know, they're presenting. Illness. Is.
1: Very much so. I can't help but say something a little bit about the surprise question, because people often say it's not useful because it's a poor prognosticating tool, but it was never developed to be a prognosticating tool. It was developed as a way of changing culture to move the culture of palliative care being only at the very end of life too much early. Good. So with that, then let's on to the second article and Jordan.
4: Thanks, Jose. So the, uh, the article that I'm presenting today is an article by uh, Constantino titled Variability Among Online Opioid Conversion Calculators Performing Common Palliative Care Conversions. So, you know, doing uh, opioid rotations is very common in palliative care. We do it all the time for a host, host of different reasons, whether or not that's tolerance, whether or not that's poor pain control, uh, worsening side effects, uh, opioid-induced neurotoxicity, it's done quite a bit. And, you know, one of the uh, tools that has been starting to pop up is a lot of these online uh, opioid conversion calculators. Uh, And so the purpose of this study is to to really just describe and and you kind of really just see, are all these calculators the same? Do they work well? Does one work better than the other? And, you know, are these, you know, accurate tools that we can use when we're we're thinking about doing opioid rotations? So essentially what they did was there is a uh, online palliative care master's of science program that's run out of the University of Baltimore. So they recruited about 58 adult learners, which were primarily practicing physicians, Nurses and pharmacists, and essentially they kind of asked them to do an exercise, which was choose any three uh, opioid online opioid calculators that they wanted to, and they gave three separate case scenarios and asked them to use those tools in order to come to uh, a conclusion or, or come to a, a certain conversion. And then they plotted those and referred those, compared those to uh, the kind of control group, which was essentially three pharmacists coming together doing a a manual opioid uh, calculator. So that was kind of taken as the the standard of care type of thing. So in terms of the results, what they found was there was actually substantial, substantial variability leading to a very wide range of outputs, which is fairly concerning because I think there is a lot of harms both with either underdosing and over-treating pain. So if you're underdosing, you're leaving somebody in quite significant amounts of pain for for potentially different a long period of time, depending on your care setting. And certainly, again, if you're if you're over-treating, then you're running into, you know, certainly sedation, opioid-induced neurotic. Toxicity, delirium, you know all the side effects that you know, even respiratory depression and death, which can you know obviously very much harm patients. And I'll talk a little bit more about the results later. But they they also found that most of the the participants that went through this and actually used a lot of these online opioid conversion calculators, they found that seventy five percent of people had a very negative sentiment towards them. Twenty percent were neutral, and only maybe three percent actually found that they would use them. And you know, essentially, why is this article important? I think it really highlights the inconsistencies potential dangers. And significant limitations when it comes to using online opioid conversion calculators. And, you know, in the article, they go into, you know, why this is the case. And it really comes down to, you know, what does it really take to do an opioid rotation? What are the processes? What are the steps? And, you know, they really kind of break that down into kind of five main steps. One of them is pain assessment, which is, you know, a lot of where, you know, our clinical expertise comes in, you know, as a palliative care and, you know, as primary care physicians. So, you know, and again, as Dr. Alan Tanaguchi would say, you know, the key to good pain management is good pain Assessment, and, and that you know isn't something that can be done by an opioid uh, conversion calculator. What's the severity of their pain? What's the etiology of their pain? They really can't do that. You know, number two is calculating a total daily dose. Well, yeah, no one a calculator can do that. Number three is actually you know converting from that particular opioid to a different one. And even so, you'd think, okay, a calculator, you know, that's what it's meant for. That's what it can do as well. But, you know, the tricky thing is, I think, is that there's a lot of complexities when it comes to opioid conversion, and, and it's not because of the math. It's third grade math. It's I think the fact that. There's a wide, wide range of opioid conversion factors, and that really significantly vary across really where you look, when you look, what resources you look, and you know your geographic origin. And then you know even thirdly is some of these calculators don't even tell you what the conversion factor is. They kind of really keep that hidden. And some of them automatically account for cross tolerance, which is often done when we uh, rotate opioids, and that can be as much as 25 to 50 percent. Which you know again, if if you don't account for that when you're doing the calculator, or maybe you do, and then you're adding a extra 50%, you can get these wide, wide ranges. The fourth thing that they're mentioned in terms of an opioid conversion is taking in patient specific factors, which again, a calculator is not going to do. So that's taking in age, renal function, hepatic function, do they have subcutaneous fat deposits, you know, all these things that we also look at. And then number five, and almost most important is also monitoring. So you know, how are they? Are they responding? Do they have pain? Are they using breakthrough? Are they sedated? Are they eating? You know, all these things, you know require a lot of breakthrough. So again, really when you're when you're converting an opioid, it's a five steps that at best an opioid calculator can really only do two. So, and, and I think that those were, you know, a lot of the things that the article is really highlighting. Some of the strengths I think of the study were that, you know, they really did try to mimic kind of real world conditions. So they did ask, you know, use any calculator they want, like if you were going to Google a calculator, you know, what would it be? So they weren't prescribing calculators necessarily. And they were trying to keep the, the case scenarios as real world using conversions that, you know, we as palliative care doctors, would do every day, you know some of the limitations are, um, you know, again, it's an online uh, master's of science course with varying levels of experience, although most people were practicing in the palliative and hospice setting. And then again, it's just in in the US. So then there's uh, just kind of a geographical difference. So uh, I apologize for all the the podcast listeners, but um, uh, for those on the webinar, this kind of slide, I think really sums it up. So you can really see that, you know, again, in case in scenario one, they were, it was converting transdermal fentanyl to long acting morphine. And there was a range of, from... Anywhere to 60 to 3,125 milligrams for the second scenario is IV hydromorphone to long-acting morphine, and there's a range of 90. To over 8,000 oral milligrams, and for a conversion from morphine to methadone, it was a range from 7.5 to 120. So these are huge, huge, wide ranges. There was vast, vast clinical significance between the calculators and and kind of the real, the gold standard pharmacist manual opioid conversion kind of answers that they came up with. So I think this really highlighted the fact that, for me personally, I, I wouldn't use these calculators in my practice, and, and certainly when I'm doing my teaching to residents, it's not a resource that would I would use. And you know even when you're using a calculator, a lot of the calculators will say, you know, please take this into account with clinical judgment and compare this with your your manual opioid conversions, which seems silly to me because the whole reason to use these calculators is to increase efficiency. But if what you're outputting is is so varied and to be honest with oceans worth of salt, then, you know, kind of what's, what's really the use.
3: Jordan, what a comprehensive coverage of the article. When I totally read the article, I went and needed to reread the line, conversions could vary by 100 to 242%. So I like, I, okay, I got it wrong, read it again. I've never used a calculator because I love math. But when we would deliver our leap sessions, often people were asking calculator, calculator. So never had I until this article realized the risks inherent with the use of the calculator. What we do promote when we talk about education is we always talk about phoning a friend. So we think, who is your your friendly pharmacist in community? Who is the palliative care doc or family physician you work with? And doing that five-step process every time. So doing the assessment, and then we always do the calculations independently, and then figure out, okay, did we take into account the 25% decrease. Did we think about all of the factors that you mentioned? So for me this article was really applicable real time.
1: Uh, Jordan, you know, and Lisa, I think just for the just to be clear for the listeners, when you say don't use calculators, you are saying don't use the opioid conversion software calculators, not a general calculator, because I do have to use calculators occasionally, but I do not use them.
4: So do I, I (laughs) Jose. Exactly.
1: I was going to say Lisa's got one step ahead of me on this one. My math is not that fantastic, but specifically the opioid conversion software. This study really resonated with me because just a few months ago, I was teaching a master's course as well in part of care in Europe, and there were about 30 people in the, in the classroom and came to a calculation. They pulled out their phones and went to these different apps, and we got all these different results. So I, I really think it's an, an important study. Uh, interestingly, uh, when I read the paper, the authors suggest that, well, they're trying to explain why there's so much variation. And one of the reasons they explain is because a lot of the tables, we tend to refer to the daily morphine equivalent dose or MED. So when you're doing a switch, for example, from fentanyl to, I don't know, to methadone, we often go via the morphine route by calculating the morphine equivalent daily dose. And we do know from studies, I remember I did a study once with uh, Peter Lawler and Eduardo Bruera. We published a very large, we did a very, very large review, systematic review of opioid equinalgesic dose ratios. And we published that in the Journal of Pain and Symptom Management in 2001. So that's 21 years ago. And we already noticed, even just with the paper tables, there was a lot of, of variation because of that um, morphine equivalent daily dose because there's such range amongst individuals. You know, we often say morphine to hydromorphone is an equianalgesic analgesic dose ratio of five to one, but actually varies a lot from three to seven or eight to one. But the one thing that I thought that the paper did not highlight was one of the other reasons I think that we see this variation relates to not indicating, and you referred to that Jordan, not indicating what ratios they're using, because there's a difference between acute pain management and chronic pain management. In the acute pain management, so someone who's hurt themselves on a sports field, comes into an emergency room, needs an opioid for analgesia, the equianalgesic dose ratio of morphine to hydromorphone is seven to one, but approximately, right? So the ratios, and we found that back in 2001 differ, whether you're using studies that come from acute pain labs or uh, versus chronic pain management. So I just thought, you know, that was an interesting one that wasn't highlighted as a possible cause for this confusion.
3: Jordan, did the article end with, and I thought it was a recommendation that if facilities feel they need a calculator, that it be credited and validated by that facility, which I thought was a good idea. So that if we have people who are needing and feeling they need that extra, at least we're clear about what is the validity of that tool. And I
4: think they do mention that, you know, if this is a tool that you do want to use just to make sure that, you know, within your healthcare setting uh, or within your network, um, just to make sure everybody, you know, one picks a calculator that is, um, you know, has been vetted by, you know, a physician, a pharmacist, you know, a team. That has, you know, transparency in regards to, you know, y- the use of conversion factors, what those conversion factors are, you know, automatic cross tolerance, inclusion, you know, all these types of things and, and to really get on the same page with one, if that is something that you're going to do, because, you know, the, the hard thing is, is when you have uh, in this study, I think they had almost like 80 to 100 different opioid calculators that different people found. So there, there's a lot of these out there. And, and you know, it's hard if, if you're really just, you know, very early or you're a learner to, to know which one is the one to use.
1: I really want to highlight two very interesting comments here. One is made by Paul McIntyre out in Nova Scotia. It wasn't the other one, Jesse Solomon, Jordan's colleague here in Hamilton. So Paul writes, I found this blog entry provocative, but difficult to wrap around not referring to online calculators, but equianalgesic tables at all. Opioid equianalgesic tables are broken. Drew Rosiel proposing we do away with the equianalgesic tables as a tool to inform clinical decisions about opioid rotations and conversions. What do people think about that? My reaction is you've got to start somewhere. And without some guidance, I think it could cause more damage. But we need to understand the limitations of these tables. Any other thoughts?
4: And so I'll say, you know, just going through the study and even just on the graph that you could see there, there was obviously some inter-variability between the, the pharmacists as well, which could vary as much as 25, to 50%. So the inter-pharmacy variability was there because it, it always will be. And I think if you took a hundred palliative care docs and then asked them to do the same thing, I think you wouldn't get a hundred of the same answers uh, either way doing yeah. manual period rotation. So again, like Jose said, I think you have to start somewhere. And Jesse, you know, just like you're saying, you know, you just can't walk away from it and, you know, call it a day. I think, you know, that fifth piece in, um, in terms of kind of of doing an opioid rotation, which is the monitoring and, and the kind of the dose adjusting from there is paramount and you know is arguably one of the, the most important parts of doing an opioid rotation.
1: Very good. And just to wrap up the discussion on that one, I just want to share Jesse Solomon's comment. I wish I could have seen the pharmacist's inter-variability. There are so many conversion tables that it's likely they all come up with different conversions. During my fellowship, I was using Lynn McPherson's Demystifying Opioid Calculations, which was a new publication and her conversion table did differ from my opinion. Attendance. It underscores the importance of making a calculation, but they're not walking away from the patient. Absolutely. So I thought that's a very good place to end the discussion. That is, remember the clinical assessment and the clinical examination and the ongoing assessment, particularly when we do switches, because you can either hit the nail on the head and get the dose right, or it could end up with an overdosing or an underdosing. So with that, I'll go on to Article Three, which I think I've been tasked at doing, and that article is by Ho and colleagues, Canadian colleagues. They work in Saskatchewan in giant Saskatchewan and acute care hospital. And the article is entitled differences in goals of care discussion outcomes among healthcare professionals and observational cross-sectional study. And that was published in Palliative Medicine a few weeks ago. So the background here is that goals of care discussions are important and that physicians and medical residents are often considered the default group to engage in these discussions. But there have been recent studies that have recognized the opportunity for nurses and allied health professionals to also facilitate these discussions. And in fact, they make the point that nurses have a strong therapeutic relationship with patients often and are in a unique position to contribute to those discussions. And in fact, in their paper, they actually referred to some studies that show the benefits and impact of nurses initiating these discussions. So the objective of this study was to compare the outcomes of goal of care discussions led by nurses and physicians. But this is specifically on CPR, so cardiopulmonary resuscitation, and they acknowledge that the goals of care discussions are far broader than CPR, and I think we can even just say that CPR is basically a consent to a certain treatment or a DNR is a consent to no treatment and emanates from the goals of care discussions. Anyway, so the setting, as I said, was a hospital in China. And the normal practice, interestingly, in the hospital there is that nurses and that the registered nurses and also the licensed practical nurses or registered practical nurses, as they refer to in some of the other provinces. So Orient and LPNs are trained to initiate and establish patients' goals of care independently. And it's a responsibility that's shared with physicians. They don't go into any detail about what their training looks like. It was a retrospective cohort study. Of patients admitted to the inter- to one of the internal medicine units in the hospital, and these were patients admitted over about a year and a half there were 200 patient charts in total. And they then did a chart review on random samples of patients. And they looked at patients' decision to accept or refuse CPR was recorded and then analyzed. Now, they stratified the patients on the basis of two instruments, the Charlson Comorbidity Index and the National Early Warning Score 2. So basically, these scores allow you to give an indication of the severity of the disease and the extent of illness of the patient, the the Scores the more comorbidity, the sicker the patients are. And they did exclude patients that had been admitted already with established code status undertaken and documented prior to admission. So the results, so 52% of the charts or the discussions were completed by nurses and 48 were by physicians. And there were no significant differences between the cohort assessed by nurses versus the cohort assessed by the physicians. And what they found was that patients were more likely to accept cardiopulmonary resuscitation in nurse-led discussions compared to physician-led ones. And nurse-led 80% ADP- uh, 0.8% versus 61.4% with the physicians. When they looked at the Charleston comorbidity index, they found that for patients with a mild to moderate index, so low extent or low amount of disease, as it were, there was no difference between the nurse and the physician, their discussions. But when they looked at the severe category, the ones with high child's comorbidity indices, there was a significant difference, again, with patients more likely to accept CPR after nurse-led discussions than physician-led discussions. And then similar results as well when they looked at the National Early Warning Score. Again, patients more likely to accept CPR after nurse-led discussions when there were high National Early Warning Score um, levels. So strengths a unique study i thought relatively simple research design and as i said earlier no significant differences between the physician and the nurse cohorts the limitations was that it is a retrospective study therefore they couldn't look at causation they also did not look at the quality of the discussions that occurred this is simply did the patient accept cpr or not and they didn't look at the quality of those discussions and again, they make the point that this might not be generalizable as this is one unit in a hospital and may be unique in that the nurses are trained to do these discussions as well. And I want to end off my summary with a conclusion by the authors. To quote them, they wrote, nurses and non-physician healthcare professionals are key participants in the goals of care discussion process and further education is needed to empower all individuals to lead effective goals of care discussions. So with that, I'll open up for the discussion.
3: Thank you for ending with Kind of the summary just say, because I had more questions than I did answers as I read through this study. But I have had in my career a very specific kind of community population of individuals. And it actually in having goals of care discussion, often it appeared the opposite, but I'm palliative specific, that the sicker patients were often the ones who had clearer decision making in regards to that goals of care. And I don't know if they had the lived experience. That went with that they'd had, you know, multiple treatments or exacerbations of their disease. If that somehow changed, so I kept finding myself wondering, were these people because anybody with goals of care discussion was excluded from the study? So were they arriving there with acute events and not understanding kind of the seriousness of their illness? So I was, I left feeling more curious than anything.
1: And and the study didn't look into into that at all. And those are very very important questions, as you highlight.
3: There's a comment from
2: uh, another nurse, clinical nurse specialist from Calgary, Jan Vandale, in the chat. Very curious about the word accept regarding CPR choices. Wonder if the case was more a patients insisting upon CPR with nursing-led discussions, favoring the authority of physicians on this very specific aspect of goals of care discussions. Curious about your thoughts about that, Lisa.
3: And that's what I wondered, is it the physician who still holds that kind of power decision making for that? Yeah, there are no more treatments that can be offered at this point. We can focus on like, is there some validation that has to happen before the playing field is kind of equal per se? I did find myself circling back. If this is going to be a shared kind of process, then how do we ensure that we have the same tools to be able to equally have that discussion regardless of the hat? that we're wearing, whether it's nursing or physician. Yeah,
2: and I'll jump in because I think this refers back to another comment Jan made earlier in our first discussion about ACP was that how do we see the role of serious illness training fitting into advanced care planning goals of care conversations? And I would say, as again, like we're talking, having a standardized tool that we can train the whole team on to use in a systematic way enables everyone to be able to deliver better care. But I think, you know, we have triggers for changes in phase of illness or symptom screening that trigger these conversations but then People have a tool they can use just like dignity therapy for specific things that is standardized and also teaches us how to document and communicate because that's the other piece, right? So we can have these great conversations, but if we're not documenting them and communicating them within the team in a way that there's no gaps in care and transitions in care are complete, then it's a problem as well. So I think that's one of the benefits of the serious illness tool and anyone on the team can be trained to use it, including social workers and spiritual care and even volunteers.
1: (laughs) I feel very strongly that these discussions, whether it's advanced care planning or goals of care discussions, should not be the monopoly only of physicians or medical residents for students. Quite the contrary, I think it is whoever it is that makes the connection with a patient or is in that particular moment, the best arriving at the situation to do that. And I wonder whether it'd be interesting to do a study across the country as to what are the attitudes of healthcare professionals in different settings? And this one looked at hospitals, right? Hospital, internal medicine unit. But I'm wondering in other settings, what are the attitudes of different professionals towards who should initiate these discussions? Because I think that we're going to come across a lot of barriers uh, about that. And so I think a lot of work needs to happen to explore that, understand that more. And then as you will say, is to equip everyone with these skills and tools so that we can all be doing a good job with it and that we collaborate when doing it. And sometimes I'm sure you've all had experience where someone goes in and gets a ball rolling and then someone else follows up and fo- and, and, and follows up on those earlier discussions and it becomes a process rather than this one event.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I, I think one thing when I was in Alberta that uh, they did very well there was they have a living tracking record. So anyone can enter the conversations that you have with a patient into the tracking record because that's actually a limitation in many EMRs is not many of the interprofessional team members can necessarily enter into the health record so you how are you going to encourage them to be playing a role in the team and doing that if they're not able to document? So having a living tracking record that everyone can communicate in and, and keep that conversation that changes over time, a living document is really critical.
4: And uh, I'd also say just in terms of also just systemic, um, you know, also like EMR specific things, like many times like, to change somebody's code status officially, it's it's an order that has to be put in by a, a physician. So, you know, can we can we look at systemic things within our healthcare system that that are, you know, like Jose was saying, our barriers? Because I think nurses are fantastic resources that, you know, again, in many healthcare settings, I, as palliative care physicians, I think we often, you know, have the luxury of spending sometimes more time with patients and getting to know them in, in that holistic sense, but many doctors don't, and, and many, many times it's the nurse who really knows the patients you know things that are the most important to them their values and preferences uh, often because of that being at the bedside and, and knowing them and, and their family so i think they are a, a potential underutilized resource that i think we're going to see more and more as in general nursing scope of practice is, is broadening
1: very much so And perhaps we're going to end off that discussion with a fantastic quote here or we'll comment from melissa bonner as a registered nurse i have Also, been trained to initiate goals of care conversations. I have this conversation at least with all my residents, and that's continuing care. So, fantastic comment to highlight the importance of this in another setting that we often don't talk about.
2: we'll move on to our last article. So this one is from the latest issue of palliative medicine, and I have a small typo on my slide here. The first author is actually uh, Mira Agar. So Mira Agar and colleagues from uh, May 2022, and the title of the article is Investigating the Benefits and Harms of Hypodermaclysis of Patients in Palliative Care, a Consecutive Cohort Study. So I think just briefly by background, we all know that hypodermaclysis is commonly used in palliative care to provide hydration and symptom benefits while reducing the need for intravenous fluid but really current research is well—it's lacking. We've got a lot of older research and it has been inconclusive and somewhat contradictory in its uh, recommendations for using lysis. Some studies suggest that there's no symptom or survival benefit uh, at all. And other studies suggest specific benefits such as maintaining cognitive function, function or reversing delirium, for example. So the objectives of this study was to prospectively identify the benefits and harms of lysis in palliative care patients with advanced disease, where it was clinically decided that that. they required supplementary fluids. So the clinician decided. It was a multi-site, multinational, consecutive cohort study for patients newly receiving hypodermoclysis in an inpatient palliative care setting across 20 sites in Australia, Canada, Germany, Malaysia, and the UK. They used a case report form to collect the data in the REDCap system using a predefined set of clinical symptoms that were related to known or potential benefits and harms of using hypodermoclysis. So they captured specific benefits including fatigue, dry mouth, generalized weakness, dizziness, delirium, and vomiting. And specific harm categories included edema, urinary frequency retention, ascites, pulmonary edema, infusion site reaction, capillary leak syndrome, and dysmia. They then looked at the severity of harms uh, using a National Cancer Institute common terminology criteria for adverse events, uh, Leichhardt scale and that was assessed by the treating physician. They collected the data at the baseline, so time zero was the time of the primary assessment by the clinician, and 24 hours later, which was time one, 24 hours post infusion of the subcutaneous fluids, and they captured a score of a, a change of a score in at least one point, sorry, to be considered clinically significant improvement in symptoms. They ended up collecting uh, data for 99 patients, but only 88 of those had the full assessments for benefits and harms collected, and they also captured additional patient characteristics for the cohort using demographics, clinical data, comorbidities, and performance status using the Australian modified Karnowski performance scale and phase of illness, which we talked about earlier. So in terms of results, and there's quite a lot of information in this study, but I'll just highlight a few things. So actually, just because you might ask, the mean infusion rate was 935 mils of normal saline over a 24-hour period, with the median was about 40 mils an hour with a range of 20 to 60 mils per hour. The most common primary indication for hypodermoclysis was supplemental Hydration, about 32%, followed by about 30% uh, for specifically for family request. Of those who were designated as the primary indication for family request, there was no target primary symptom identified in a third of those. And then another third had generalized weakness noted as the target symptom. So overall benefits in a primary target symptom were experienced in about 33% of the cohort. And when they took into account any target symptom, it was just over half. Um, about 10% of the cohort experienced symptom resolution but they didn't look at which specific symptoms had a higher degree of improvement than others. Um, harms occurred in almost 39% of participants and it was predominantly lower extremity edema and more frequent harms and less benefits were seen in those in their terminal phase of their illness as defined by the Karnofsky performance scale of 10 to 30% and a phase of illness in their deteriorating phase. In that setting harms were 46% and in terms of benefits and those folks at the end of Life, it was 0% for the primary target symptom and 15% for any indication. So, why is this article important? Well, I think we said earlier there's not a lot of very good evidence base for our use of hypodermic lysis, but it's very commonly used. We know that it may improve certain symptoms in patients in um, palliative care, but we don't really know the frequency of harms and benefits. And, you know, certainly the study contributes to the literature in terms of there's less benefit closer to the end of life, but really need more information around are there specific symptoms that could be targeted with a better evidence base? And really, I think the implications are that careful individual assessment as we do is needed for considering hypodermoclysis and making sure that we have good family discussions about the potential benefits and harms, especially given a large number of the indications for using hypodermoclysis in the study were family request. Future research, carefully designed research trials are required. This is the author's suggestion, which should consider performance status and predictions of life expectancy when evaluating the potential benefits of hypodermoclysis. And as I just mentioned, which symptoms can be specifically improved with hypodermoclysis. Some of the strengths, it was a prospective study from multiple sites in multiple countries, provides kind of a real world view of hyperdermoclysis and its indications and minimized their selection bias by their methodology. But of course, limitations are that the majority of patients had malignant conditions, which can limit the generalizability. Out of the 20 sites, 14 of them, so 70% of them were actually from Australia. So limits the understanding of variation of practice by country, and we don't know how countries who weren't part of the study do things. And then uh, I did focus on this earlier, but the short time frame. So we, you know, time zero to time one was 24 hours. So you capture the more immediate effects of hyperdermoclysis in terms of its benefits and potential harms, but not the longer term when we know many patients are on it for many days for ongoing infusion so those are some of the highlights I'm curious to, to see what others thought about this article
4: I thought it was uh it was certainly an interesting article you know again I think it confirms you know some of the you know what we often you know at least say to patients especially in the uh, in the terminal stage so you know in somebody's PPS, you know, 10, 20%, you know, I, I think it certainly confirms that the teaching that we often do that at uh, that stage of uh, periods of times harms vastly away the, the benefits. I think it was interesting in terms of, the, you know, I think there are some some patients who, who might benefit from this, but um, it was interesting that in terms of the indications, you know, uh, I think almost like two thirds of it was either at family request or supplemental hydration, which it's not really a symptom either. And, you know, when you, when you look actually through the uh, through the study, the, the top three primary uh, symptoms that they were targeting, I believe, were fatigue generalized weakness, and dry mouth. And when you look into the chart, when you look through actually all of those symptoms, each one of them, people have a benefit in less than 25% of those cases and harms are about 30 to 35%. percent Albeit, will bet, you know, uh, most of those harms tend to be, you know, things like uh, lower extremity edema, which depending on kind of how people feel about that. So I think that for me indicates that I think it's not unreasonable to try something, but I would do a time-limited trial. And, and if I'm not seeing the, the benefit, then I'd be pretty quick to, to kind of stop those things. Because again, as the paper also says, they didn't really measure harms after a prolonged period of times. And I think it's unlikely that if you're not seeing a lot of benefit within a fairly short period of window, you extend or increase the risk of those harms on an ongoing basis.
1: Leonie, could you explain again just how they determined whether the hydration was worsening, things like edema? And I ask this question because at the end of life, often we'll see the peripheral edema, not because of the hydration, but because of a low albumin levels caused by the advanced disease or obstruction in the by lymph nodes in the pelvis.
2: Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the difference between time zero and time one, so in that 24-hour period, so they did the baseline assessments using those NCI scales that I mentioned. Yeah. that looked at yeah and then they reevaluated those 24 hours later so again it's a very short window but something they assumed it the change was because of the intervention but again that's not conclusive of course yeah
3: yeah and this study Leona didn't take in like our cardiac patients either did it so we don't have that evidence to suggest kind of I go back to Jordan's it's really a case by case basis and I love that you've mentioned that therapeutic trial that we have a start time and an end time, and then we're going to evaluate the harms and the risks and decide, has this provided benefit absolutely essential?
1: Fantastic. And I see we've reached the end of our session. Very quickly, let's list the honorable mentions. So again, a broad variety of papers. There's the topic of hope, the topic of managing nausea, factors related to the quality of -of end-of-life care in patients with interstitial lung disease, there's a, a look at part of systemic therapy given near the end of life for metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. There's evaluation of an interesting one on the efficacy and safety of subcutaneous acetaminophen, among others. So we would really ask you to have a look at our website. The presentation will be posted on the website as uh, along with the recording actually very soon. Let me take this opportunity to thank again, uh, Leone, my partner on this, um, with this podcast and to a fantastic panel today with Lisa and George. Jordan, as our guests, thank you for taking the time to be with us and share your insights. And again, we hope to see you in the next session, which will be September the 26th of this year. And I'd also like to take a few seconds to thank the teams that monitor all these different journals. And these are teams, as I said, across different sites linked to our divisions of palliative care at Queen's and at McMaster. Thanks for joining everyone and hope to see you soon again.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. I'm James O'Hearn, and I hope you found it both enjoyable and informative. This podcast is a collaboration between Pallium Canada and the Divisions of Palliative Care at Queen's University and McMaster University. It is a part of the palliative care echo project which aims to support continuous professional development among healthcare providers across canada who care for patients with life-limiting illness if you'd like to learn more about the journal watch program or our other palliative care echo project activities feel free to email us at echo at pallium.ca that's echo at p-a-l-l-i-u-m.ca or visit our website at www.echopalliative.com. The Palliative Care Echo Project is supported by financial contributions from Health Canada. However, the views expressed in today's episode do not necessarily represent the views of Health Canada. The music for this episode is Dazed by Airtone, copyright 2012 licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 3.0 license. You can find Airtone's music at dig.ccmixter.org. Today's episode was produced by Holly Finn. See you soon.